Good morning, friends. Happy Sunday. Happy spring. Happy sunshine. I trust this is not April Fool's spring, but this is the real deal, and it's going to stick around um, at least until it starts hitting 80, and then we'll say, oh my gosh, can't it be 60 again? Um, <clears throat> but um, anyway, as uh, Pete said, although many of you couldn't hear it because he was muted, um, I'm Scott Oakman, and uh, I'm one of the members of the volunteer preaching team. My wife, Anita, who you see around this church far more often than you see me because she does thousands of things in this building, uh, and I have been part of this uh, congregation for uh, 27 years this month. Um, we always remember that because it was in April of 1995 that we started coming here just before uh, our daughter Alyssa was born. Anita was great with child with Alyssa, and she will turn 27 this month. Uh, I'm told she's listening to us on Facebook as she gets her hair ready for her uh, performance in a play at uh, the Phipps Center in Hudson, Wisconsin this afternoon. Uh, so if you get a chance to see that this afternoon or next weekend, uh, it's a real banger of a mystery whodunit. Uh, so enjoy. Uh, anyway, uh, we have four children, uh, 30 down to 17, with only the youngest still in the house. So we're almost empty nesters. And I'm a hospital psychiatrist uh, at Regents Hospital. And up until Friday, I was the residency training director for Regions and for Hennepin Healthcare. So this is a uh, time of transition for me, and I'm going through some reflection and reevaluation as well. Uh, right now, we're walking together as a church through this season called Lent, which is a period of time in the church calendar which precedes Easter, and which is specially set aside for reflection, prayer, and fasting and which recalls the 40 days that Jesus spent fasting in the desert. Now, Pastor Pete started this series of Lenten sermons a few weeks ago, talking about how God helps us in temptation, and looked at how Jesus responded to temptations in his time in the desert. Then Pastor Justin talked about responding to losses, whether we're voluntarily choosing to give up things, or whether we have no choice in the matter and things get taken away from us against our will, and we find life even in loss. And then two weeks ago, my fellow teammate Don Weber talked about listening to God when God places you in the desert and how our community helps us to listen. Now, Anita and I have talked very often about how we think that Don is probably the best example of anyone in this church for someone who listens to God. And Don and I both got, got psalms with desert themes in our lectionary, and you know, all that dryness is really hard on our hair. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't like fasting in deserts. I much prefer feasting in desserts. But I did want Don to know how much he inspires me. And he's always loved when I bring good inspirational material into my sermons. He's such a faithful and persistent guy. So this poster made me think especially of him. Perseverance, the courage to ignore the obvious wisdom of turning back. <laughs> and I found another one with a more explicit desert theme. And I thought maybe it would go nicely in his office to encourage him. You always miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Statistically speaking, 99% of the shots you do. <laughs> and one more for us, Don, just to keep up with the desert theme, hope. 
may not be warranted at this point. <laughs> you may get the idea that I have a little bit of a problem with negativity in my life. Um, but I really do believe that this is a season when God helps us to listen. And he uses all of our circumstances, all of the people around us, and especially the Bible, to help us get where we're supposed to go. As I mentioned, I'm in a season of transition and reevaluation myself. I'm not retiring, and I'm really not going anywhere, but it's a major change in my primary role, and I'm looking for the best direction for my gifts and interests going forward. And I really enjoyed discovering the passages in the Bible reading plan and how they've led into today's sermon, and especially how I saw them fitting together with Pete's sermon from last week and our reading of When Everything is on Fire by Brian Zond, which was our theology pub that we read together last week. Pete spoke last week about something called deconstruction, which is this process of reevaluating and examining our beliefs making a change in our way of thinking in order to re-experience the love of God. But for some of us, there's this uneasy question, can I still find God's love when I'm deconstructing? If I'm just not sure if my long-held beliefs are working. And I want to reiterate and clarify, deconstruction is not throwing away our beliefs but it's a process of carefully and lovingly re-evaluating those beliefs when we find that there's something about the way we've been taught to believe that really isn't working. Zond uses the analogy of restoring an artwork, of how you remove a thousand years of accumulated grime and soot and bad repair jobs to reveal the real beauty beneath that the artist intended. So our approach to growing faith through a time of deconstruction is not a matter of studying better to know more facts about God or about the Bible, but of experiencing more of the God of the Bible. Last week, Pete talked about the example of the lost son from Luke 15 and how both sons, the one that breaks all the rules and the one that follows all the rules, both miss out on experiencing the love of the father. But the rule breaker returns to his father's embrace. And the rule keeping older son, he's left with the challenge to change his thinking from rule follower to God lover. Jesus leaves the story unfinished. It's a work in progress. We get to write ourselves into that story. Could he break a rule and no love? The answer's up to him. I want to pick up the topic there today. If we are deconstructing or questioning our faith, what comes next? When we shake up all of our long-held beliefs about what we think the Bible says and how we think it tells us we should live, what happens then? Is there life after deconstruction? What gets reconstructed from a time of deconstruction? My desert psalm for the week was Psalm 126, and it gives us a picture of what 
It is to experience restoration, reconstruction from God. Like the lost son, the people of Israel had been brought back from exile after some 70 years. That is a long time to wonder if maybe God had abandoned them forever, if they'd ever see their homeland again. And it reads like this. When the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, we're here to be refreshed this morning. We need to be restored. We've been in a long, cold winter, a long, hard, dry spell. Some of us have felt like we've been in exile. We ask you to refresh and restore us today. Speak to us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Zond describes the process of learning to experience the love of God as moving from the house of fear to the house of love. He characterizes the house of fear as a place of fear, hatred, violence, scarcity, and death. He says the temptation is to fear the fear, hate the hate, and react with violence to the violence. And we try to defend ourselves against these fears with more rules, more effort, and still end up consumed by the same things that we are trying to avoid. Things like threats of hell for small sins. Things like not attending a church because of some doctrinal question you have about what they believe. Have you ever heard that you shouldn't attend a certain church because they might allow women to hold a leadership position? Or you might have a fear that some part of your belief system comes apart on some tiny point of literal truth about Scripture. How people should dress, when to celebrate the Sabbath, whether or not somebody should get a tattoo or not. These are questions that have split and plagued the church for centuries. But it's not just theological beliefs that need to undergo deconstruction. It's our entire lives that need to be renewed and remade. We have massive holes in our lives. We have cracks and gaps that simply cannot be repaired by trying harder, by following the rules better or thinking correctly, like the older son in last week's story. I tried to solve problems that way for a long time. I thought there must be a right way to pray that God will answer. There must be a correct answer to this doctrine. There must be a way to understand what God thinks about this. There's got to be an unbeatable argument that will prove God's existence and win anyone to Jesus, right? And yet, the more we do this, the longer 
farther away we feel from singing, the Lord has done amazing things for us. And maybe when we can't find those answers, we just give up. Maybe when our prayers don't get answered and the world is falling apart around us, maybe it's better to just escape from the pain with distracting activities, hedonistic pursuits, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Let's break all the rules we can since they don't matter anyway. We need total reconstruction. We need a new experience of God's love. Well, this past year, everything for me has come back to Encanto. Um, and if you haven't seen it, if you're one of the poor, benighted few that have not yet seen this movie, um, I'm sure you'll correct that this week. Um, this amazingly gifted family lives in a magical house, their casita. There's just one problem. There are cracks beginning to appear in the house, and only Maribel can see this. And to fix it, she has to break the family's only unwritten rule, which is what? We don't talk about Bruno, right. The mysterious outcast uncle. We don't talk about him. For Maribel, this is a risk. Because when she goes to seek out Bruno and the truth about Bruno, she gets blamed not just for breaking the rule, but for all of the chaos and destruction that follows. But she's also instrumental in bringing about the reconstruction and restoration. Yes, this is a cartoon fairy tale, but it's an incredibly good one. And there's layers upon layers of meaning in this. I don't think I can ever see this again without seeing it as a parable of our need for deconstruction and God's goodness to us in reconstruction. For you see, God created a gifted family for himself as well. In our Old Testament readings from the Bible reading plan in Isaiah 43 and Psalm 126 refer to that process of deconstruction and reconstruction in Israel's history. God took the nation of Israel, delivered them from Egypt, and put them in a special place with the intent that they would someday honor him before the whole world. And the point of Isaiah was they weren't doing that. So there had to be deconstruction and reconstruction, in this case through a time of exile. I spoke about this period actually the last time I preached during Advent from the book of Malachi. This was the time about 400 years before Jesus came when the nation had been leveled and the people had been carried away to Babylon to finally be set free from, by Persia and allowed to be returned home to rebuild. And this is what the prophet Isaiah had to say to these people in exile. I am the Lord who opened a way through the waters, making a dry path through the sea. I called forth the mighty army of Egypt with all its chariots and horses. I drew them beneath the waves, and they drowned. Their lives snuffed out like a smoldering candle wick. But forget all that. It is nothing compared to what I am going to do. For I am about to do something new. I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. 
The wild animals in the fields will thank me, the jackals and the owls too, for giving them water in the desert. Yes, I will make rivers in the dry wasteland so my chosen people can be refreshed. I have made Israel for myself, and they will someday honor me before the whole world. These people are at an absolute low. Their capital city, and more importantly, their temple, have been destroyed. Their people scattered, and their old identity as a nation is hanging on by a thread. Isaiah calls back to the Lord bringing them out of Egypt, that event that they remember every year at Passover, and with the story of God miraculously delivering them from Pharaoh's armies, their national creation story. And he says, forget all that. I'm doing something new. God is going to bring them out again across 650 miles of desert wasteland, and more importantly, he has a purpose for them. They are to honor him before the whole world. That is why he keeps his people intact, why he delivers them from exile. That is what he is reconstructing them for. It really breaks my heart to hear it when Christians, the people of God today, become defined more in the world by what we are against than who we are for, the one whose name we carry. That the church, that Christians, the people who should honor Jesus before the whole world would be perceived as bigoted, hateful, and placing barriers between Jesus and those who seek him. These are results from a study by the Barna Group, which is a group that for the last couple of decades has been systematically studying the relationships between the church and society. And these are Christians' own self-reports about whether they thought they more closely displayed the attitudes and actions of Jesus or those of the Pharisees, the people of Jesus' time who strictly followed the rules. And 51% would agree that they are more like the Pharisees than like Jesus, that they don't reflect the love of Jesus for other people. Only 14% said that they regularly listen to others to learn their story before telling their faith, that they regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faith or morals, that they try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to them. What are we known for? I'd like to think that we here at River Heights are known for loving God, loving people, and changing the world. And that most of us are up here in that upper right quadrant. I'm sorry, and I can't get my right and left straight some days. But ask yourself, do our attitudes and behaviors display Jesus? Or do they keep people from seeing Jesus? If we keep people from seeing Jesus, then we might need to start thinking about needing to break a few rules. And, you know, maybe we need to help our rule-following brothers and sisters experience Jesus more, too. We might all need to be deconstructed, to have something new built in its place, so that we can be more like Jesus, so that he's honored before the whole world. 
so that every person, every human would be able to say, what amazing things the Lord has done for me. Deconstruction is inevitable. There's sometimes deconstruction that we choose to do, that we embark on ourselves, and other times it's just simply forced on us. Has anyone had a tough year? A tough couple of years? Yeah. I'm in healthcare. A lot of us are just broken, discouraged, grieving, worn out, burned out. You know that we're approaching one million Americans dead, probably more, just from one virus. According to a Scientific American article, 243,000 children have lost a caregiver. 194,000 have lost one or both parents to this virus. That has lifetime negative impacts. 730,000 Americans over age 65, almost three-quarters of a million, have died. Statistically, people who should have lived many more years, grandparents, volunteers, people who perform an important role in our society. Every person whose passing leaves a giant hole. The article said, on average, each death leaves nine people grieving. One million dead, 10 million grieving. So many of us losing a sense of safety, a sense of joy from what we had before the pandemic. And add to that this new awareness we have of the devastation of war. Yet again, for some of us who are over the age of 55, suddenly re-experiencing some of those old Cold War fears of uh, mutually assured nuclear destruction. I hadn't felt that since about 1990 or so. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, is somebody gonna push the button or not? Along with all that, this division of society, the oppression of the marginalized, census violence, misinformation, not even being able to agree on what constitutes fact versus fake anymore and the ongoing destruction of our world's climate. I felt very much that I'm in the middle of a slow-moving disaster, and I just have this strong temptation to just give up. And I could go one of two directions with that. I can either just give in and escape, or I can just encircle myself with ever stronger defenses to keep the world and all of its dangers out. That's what Zond would call the house of fear. Zadie Smith, who is a professor of creative writing at NYU, wrote a piece in New Yorker back at the start of the pandemic. Uh, the death toll was only beginning to mount in New York City. And she related how after hearing someone say, I wish we could have our old life back, she reflected, but no one in 1945 wished to return to the old life, to return to 1939 before the war except if they could bring back some of the dead. Disaster demanded a new dawn. Only new thinking can lead to a new dawn. We know that. Though the idea of putting things back the way they were might be comforting, it's not how we reconstruct. Disaster demands a new dawn. We cannot go back to the conditions that led to the crisis. The old rules for living just don't work anymore. We cannot return to normal. 
We need new ways of thinking and new ways of living. And that means we need to be people who are showing the love of Jesus to the world in new ways. Which brings me finally to our gospel reading in John 12. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Martha took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So some context. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus appear together as close friends and supporters of Jesus. In the previous chapter, we'd seen Jesus had deliberately delayed returning after learning that Lazarus was ill, and presumably after being asked to come and heal him. When they arrived, he'd already been dead and buried four days. But Jesus broke the rule that the dead stay dead. He told them to open the tomb and call Lazarus to come out alive. A lot of people's faith got deconstructed that day. And so at this dinner, as they're preparing for their Passover holiday and gathering to honor Jesus and thank him, Mary does some unthinkable rule-breaking. She takes a pint of pure perfume, the good stuff. For that family, it probably represented her life savings, maybe even a dowry if she was going to get married. Literally, they were, it was their liquid assets. It was stored in a sealed one-time-use flask that required it to be broken to release it. So literally, there was no turning back. And she poured it all on Jesus' feet and wiped her feet, his feet with her hair, a truly unthinkable display of public intimacy. And the house is filled with the fragrance. I looked up, it's related to honeysuckle and lavender. So think about that. Brian Zahn describes post-deconstruction spiritual life as moving from the house of fear to the house of love. Many of us are living in a spiritual house of fear, afraid of what we might lose if we break a rule or take a risk. Mary shows us an example of what it is to live in the house of love. We might have learned as children that breaking rules means losing love. And we're pretty sure on our insides that God's rules work the same way. So we work like hell to make sure that we don't break a rule and also that no one around us breaks them either. We might also be ruled by fear of scarcity, of never having enough. So the thought of extravagantly pouring out her wealth the way Mary did makes us feel really uneasy. 
We might have fear of failing, of having been told you can't do something because your grades or test scores aren't good enough. Fear of what people will think if we show our love to an outcast or an outcast group. Or express our opinion when it's contrary to an established position. Maybe you've been told that your ideas or feelings don't matter because you're too young or a woman or too new here. Or maybe you've been told that you don't belong because you have a mental illness or a disability. Or maybe because you're gay or lesbian. Sometimes all of our service of the rules, our clinging to old constructions is just a service to fear. We think the rules are keeping us safe, but ultimately they're harming us, they're keeping us distant from God, and they're keeping others out of God's presence. Mary took a risk and broke rules. She displays wildly extravagant, prodigal love for Jesus. And she gets pushback from the rule followers, the practical thinkers. But whose approval really matters? Who is she choosing to honor? In Mark's account of this story, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout this world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. She honors him before the whole earth. Zond concludes when everything is on fire with a call for us to live a life of reconstruction that gradually changes our residence from the cruel house of fear to the peaceable house of love. Though we are grieved at the hellish happenings in our society, we are not destroyed by them. For those who have learned to live in the house of love, there is inner peace. In the house of fear, the illusion of scarcity dominates. There is never enough in the house of fear. So its inhabitants think they have to fight for their share. In the house of fear, we cannot welcome the stranger or care for the poor because there may not be enough for us. The universe is not benign, but God is love. Cruel vagaries abound, but God is love. Harms are hidden among us, but God is love. An awareness of God's love is the secret to facing the world as it is and still abiding in peace. We are never perfectly safe, but we are always perfectly loved. This isn't a love that you can analyze yourself into. Like the lost son, like Mary, we need to experience it. And I want to give us all a chance to experience God's love here today in our worship and prayer at least on some small scale. We always end with worship and prayer and some tips to carry you into the week ahead. So I'm just going to do this in a little different order today to give us a chance to experience God's peace and love here today. I'm going to invite the worship team up while I uh, go over the tips with you. <clears throat> so we always give you tips, something to read, something to pray, and something to do for the week. And the reading for this week is to read John chapter 14. It starts with the verse, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. And it leads through Jesus' final dialogue with the disciples. 
and how he's bringing them peace. And to pray, bring those troubles of your heart and your fears to Jesus to be replaced with his peace. And the do that I would ask you to do, if possible, every day, is to make time to receive the peace of the Lord, to set aside time in quiet to receive peace. And remember that the word peace in Hebrew is shalom. It means more than peace. It means wholeness, completeness. So as you're making time to receive the shalom of the Lord, you're receiving his completeness, his wholeness for you to fill those cracks and gaps in your life and bring you into his house of love. I want to play a couple of minutes for you from a song that we're preparing in our men's chorale, uh, Minnesota Valley Men's Chorus for our concert this spring. It's called Shalom. Uh, it's by, written by Dan Forrest. Um, I just ask you to make yourself comfortable and quiet. You can close your eyes if you want. Otherwise, I have the uh, text, the verse that is from the text of this uh, song up on a slide. And we'll just play a couple of minutes of it. I would like you to quiet yourself. Um, when it's over, I'll um, pray and uh, we'll invite the prayer team up at that time. Um, this is just something you can do for yourself at home, um, just to quiet yourself in, in your office, in your car, with your eyes open, please. But um, yeah, just um, take a couple minutes to let the shalom of God uh, come into your heart. Yeah. 